You've been speaking to us through this book in the past few weeks, and we are expectant and faithful that you will continue to speak to your church. We thank you for putting, inspiring the author to write this 3,000 years ago, something that yet seems so relevant for us today. Help us to take away with, take away from it, not just knowledge and wisdom and the feelings of conviction or different types of feelings, but that we would be transformed people because of your powerful and living word in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys uh, probably don't know what the person sitting right next to you is thinking, and for some of you that might be a very good thing. Um, and so... And you guys probably don't know where that person is at, and I'm not talking about physically, but just in terms of emotionally, um, what's going on in their life and what they're feeling and how they try to make sense of their existence and their struggles and things like that. 
And even if they are someone close to you, say like a spouse or a dear friend, that you probably don't know every single bit about it, because they probably don't even know themselves. And yet, God knows. He, he knows it all. He knows everything, all about each one of us, the things that we're feeling, the things that we're thinking, whether that be in the past, the present, or the future, and in God knowing everything about each one of us, we're given his word, and specifically this morning, Ecclesiastes 3, to match what's written here to the things that we're going through. Now, in this first section of chapter 3 from verses 1 through 8, which was sung really beautifully by Jane, is talking about this monotonous schedule of life, just this repetition of life that we're on this hamster wheel. And it just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And then in these verses where we have this ledger, which on one side of the ledger is 14 items. And you can count them if you like, but I did the work ahead of time for you. But, and if I'm wrong, just let me know. I'm not married to the number 14. So 14. And, and, and then yet on the other side, you also have 14. And so... Here's 14, and then the difference of 14, and what does that yield you? Just this big fat zero, right? So you got this 14, and the difference of 14, you get this big, through, big fat zero, and then so you're going through all of this, and you go through all of this, and then all of life, it just comes out to this. Again, very, a very, very optimistic um, book of the Bible. Now, remember that this is written from a humanistic perspective. This is written from a secularist perspective uh, when Koheleth is writing uh, Ecclesiastes. Now, some of you may have heard that song before um, and not known that uh, it's from the Bible, kind of like when I was a kid and I heard that song. And one day I, I went through Ecclesiastes 3 when I was a kid and I was like, oh, wow, um, the Bible copied those people that wrote that song. And so I'm thinking this. But... For everything, there is a season and a time, or for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. It, something about us is we, we always want to be in control. We always want to be in control, and there's yet so much that is completely out of our control. And you just think of something as simple as seasons. There are no control over seasons. Um, and some may argue that California doesn't have seasons. I, I get it. But let's even just think of seasons in life. You have no control over the, the seasons of life. That there are things that are going to happen no matter what. That aging happens no matter what. We can try to slow it down, but it's going to happen. You know, when we, um, when we go over to family or friends for dinner, we, we just... Within my own culture, there's a tradition, a value to not go empty-handed. You always bring something when you're going over for dinner. And so occasionally I'll bring over a bottle of wine. So I'll go to Costco or Trader Joe's or whatever, and I'll, I'll buy a bottle of wine. And then when I go to the cash register and I'm checking out, and, and, and then the, the cash, cashier asks for my ID, I look over to my wife, and I look over to my kids, Gladly. <laughs> and then I'll go ask the cashier, like, 
So do you accept gratuities as a cashier? Because, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to like... The thing is, though, I haven't been asked that question in a while. And we place so much value over being in control over things, yet life, time, aging doesn't stop for anybody. And our time is really finite, and it's really insignificant when we're looking at the grand scheme of eternity, right? And that we are not in control even of this sliver, but that God is in control of all of it. See, we weren't in control when we were born. And then once we were born, we actually don't know when we're going to die. And we don't dictate when things are planted and when things are harvested because the seasons do that. And seasons determine that. We, ha we don't have control over that. We don't have control over sunshine. We don't have control over rain. We don't have control over those things. And then Koheleth goes on to, to write, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. Time to seek, time to love, time to keep, time to cast away, time to tear, time to sow, time to keep silence, time to speak, time to love, time to hate, time for war, time for peace. 14, 14, big fat zero. So there's a time for a farmer to put down their animal and a time to heal their animal. Um, this had me instantly go, go to Old Yeller. Um, that movie still makes me cry. And if, if you haven't watched it, watch it. And if, if you have, you know what I mean about there being cycles that we just don't have any control over. Things happen, cycles. Ending up where other people are confused about how you got there, right? Like so you go back to a reunion or something like that and, and people are confused at how you got to where you're at. You know, you, you meet up with old friends and you talk about where you are now. And so you, you wonder about that person. Like, how did that person become a lawyer or a teacher or a cop or an engineer or whatever they turned out to be? And you kind of wonder, like, how did that happen? Because I thought you were going to be in jail, not put people in jail, right? And so, like, how did that happen? Because that happens to me all the time. Um, not the jail piece about me, like, being a pastor. Like, like when I when asking, like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm a pastor. Like, what? Like, how did, how did that happen? And I was like, I, I don't have any clue how that happened. Um, I'm not in control. It's proof of that, that I'm not in control of my life. And these cycles of life that we're not in control. Think of, a, think of this, Y2K, right, Y2K. Uh, most of you were in elementary school back then in Y2K, and it's just like, and I'm like, OMG, and I'm not taking the Lord's name in vain because I literally mean that. Like, I can't believe, like, most of you were in elementary school in y during Y2K. It's uh, nuts to me. Anyway, I lived in San Francisco at the time. I, I, I kind of recently got transferred from our L.A. office to, to work in San Francisco, and so I'm new in the city and people wondering all around us, like, what's going to happen because, like, the tech sector is so big here and, and things like that. So people had these questions, and so I'd meet with these companies, and everyone would have these questions. Well, what, how are you preparing for Y2K and all this kind of stuff? And what's going to happen to all these industries that are so dependent on computers? 
And all I could think about when people are discussing Y2K is, all I can think about was Prince. Because um, Prince, one of the greatest artists of all time in my humble opinion, wrote this song 1999. And it was 1999, that's all I can think of. 1999, and that's all I can think about. And and he wrote that in 1982, which, which, the 80s were a glorious years, by the way, the, the, just glorious, glorious years. And again, OMG, I'm not taking the Lord's name in vain. I literally mean it because most of you weren't born yet in 82. But he wrote that song in the 80s because he was around all of his friends, and all his friends were worried, like, hey, you know, 18 years from now, it's going to be 2000. What's going to happen? What's going to happen in the turn of the, the millennia? Like, and yet, here we are, 2018. It's, time doesn't stop, even though we want it to. I really want it to, because I have a four-year-old that's super cute, and then they change. So I just want her to stay four. I, I, I don't want her to go to kindergarten next year, but, but time doesn't stop. And, and yet, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that we can only see and think that our tiny fraction of existence in our time and space in the grand scheme of eternity, that this is the most important and significant time in history. And the problem is, is that we think that our time that we occupy right now is the most important time, when in the reality it is just a fraction, it is just a sliver of eternity. Which may be the reason why we are so narcissistic, which may be the reason why people are just living for today, thinking that we are more than we really are, because we think that this is the most significant time when we aren't. Because we're no more significant than our great-great-great-grandparents in their sliver of time. So why are we not satisfied here and now? Why are we always on the quest to know more, to do more, to be more, to make things better? That nothing ever satisfies us fully here and now. And the reason why is because we weren't created for this. We were created for this. So you can never be satisfied just being here. We live today for the glory of God, and this is a gift from God. Our significance lies in being created by Creator God, who created us for not just this, but for this. Created to be in his presence, which is essentially what heaven means, to be in his presence, because hell is absence of God. And without him, there is no satisfaction. We have burdens that weren't made to be carried by ourselves. God is here for us, and we do need him to intervene in this sliver of time. And we, yet we have this mundane routine in verses 1 through 8, But then we're given this new outlook in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? And this isn't a question about like what you gain from work in terms of compensation or salary or remuneration or anything like that. It's about how we get 
something more. It's not about getting paid so that I can buy food to provide shelter so, and, and then feed myself to go to work and provide food and shelter and then to keep going over and over again of that routine. It, it's, it's more than just mere survival. It's about why we do what we do. That What's the point of life? Why am I here? And, and here's some good news finally, verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And so maybe you, like me, are thinking, God did this? God created this? He put this burden on me? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay, so God created this work. He created this beautiful world that he set in time and space for people to commune with him, to work in the world and to enjoy communion with God where death is not yet part of this system. And it is a world created by God to be harmonious and beautiful and pure, perfect. God established this reality that one day will be, and then people disrupt it. And Genesis goes into that. They disrupt it through sin. And we've been living in this disruption ever since. Tyrannized, but what was to be, what was created by God to be, to be beautiful and harmonious and pure to what it is today. Take a look with me at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God created us to have meaning. We're not here by chance. We have a purpose, and nothing is going to satisfy that longing in us as long as we're stuck here. And that burden was put there by God to help us see that everything without him is meaningless. But with him, even in the sliver, even in the fraction, there is meaning. Because there is an everlasting meaning. And yes, we are finite beings who are not in control. And if you do believe you are in control, I encourage you just to do one thing to prove that you are not in control. Become a foster parent. It will blow it all out of the water to think that you are in control. Nothing like being a parent to show how little control you have. Being a parent not only shows that you don't have control, it shows how sinful you are. 
It shows how sinful you are because not only does the little devil that you're parenting have sin in them, but that little devil, the little person, pulls the sin out of you. So it just proves how sinful you are. See, without God, we are fugitives in this world under the sun. Where there's that code word again, right? Under the sun, it means without God, absent of God, that we're, we're, we're born and, and we can't wait to get older. 14, right? And then when we're older, we fight to be younger. 14, right? And then what do you get? Big fat zero. We're born and we work. And we work our way into careers that we just love and our dream careers. It, it provides us all the things that we think that it provides. And then we advance and we get to the pinnacle of what we worked for. And then you stop working because you can't work anymore. Then you have the 14 and you have the 14 and what do you have? And so, of course, there is joy to be experienced in life. There's family, there's vocation, there's service, and there's all these things. But then they all come to an end. So what do you really end up with? They don't fulfill the deepest longings within us for everlasting. And why is that? Because there was a burden placed there by God that can't be lifted by anyone else or anything else but God. And only God can lift that and fill the deepest longing. So I want to share a quote with you by Augustine, arguably the, the most important Christian writer, uh, second to the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this in a prayer uh, within his book, Confessions, and it reads this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We have burdens, every single one of us, and I myself, I, I feel it. I feel it in this job, in this ministry. I also feel a restlessness in this ministry. And there's this constant tension to lay our burdens down before God. And yet so often we, we kind of carry them ourselves. We carry those burdens ourselves. But, but if the burdens were not there, really, how often would we even go to God? We tend to go to God when those burdens are heaviest. I've prayed more this week than I have in a really long time. There's just a, a, a really, really heavy burden at our church in these past couple of weeks. Eric uh, Jardine, one of our elders uh, at the church, um, in our correspondence with um, our elder board, uh, he, was, he was led to share this email after Bruce shared, shared about all the tough stuff that's going on in our church. And um, he wrote something to the effect of, it's, it's no accident that we're going through the things we're going through because really good stuff is happening here and really good ministry is happening here and we, we have like eternity in mind. So the burdens are going to be heavy. And I spoke with my wife about this in length last Friday night because I was just like, man, this is, this is a bummer way to live. I, I don't like living like this. I don't like carrying all this stuff. I, I, I wish that I didn't have to do that. 
and how the ministry we're involved in is so burdensome and it's so heavy. And the only thing I can do is I can lay it down before God because that's, that's all that's left. Because after I've done everything I can possibly do and after I've done asked people to do everything they can possibly do, really, what's left? We can only do so much. I hear through social media and other things like, oh, we got to just stop praying. People just always say prayers are with you, prayers are with you. We got to do something. Uh, my thought is the problem is you haven't done anything. That's why you're saying prayer is no good. But if you've exhausted everything you can possibly do, what left is there? What, what, what else can you do? You can only pray. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. To be able to recognize God can... To be able to only recognize that God is to be able to recognize that we are finite beings. That's the only way to see God. And if we think that we are more than we are, we won't be able to see God. That even though the things we experience now are, are cyclical and they're monotonous, that we have this infinite God who is not bound by time or space or even by the things that we're experiencing now, that what we experience now points to God who is greater, that the burdens and the restlessness that we are experiencing now point to a deliverer, they point to a savior, they point to Jesus. That our identity is not completely tied to me just as an individual, but our identity is in God, in his creation, that we exist for a greater purpose than just myself. That my purpose is Bigger than just for my family. Don't get me wrong. I, I love being a husband. I love being a dad, a son, a brother, a cousin, an uncle. But there must be a realization that God is still yet doing something greater. That my purpose is more than what I do for work. Because God is at work. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. There's that phrase again, under the sun, again, code word for apart from God, and for anyone concerned with justice, in just looking at this from a humanistic point of view, a secularistic point of view, it doesn't pan out well. Justice stinks in the world. It doesn't equate. There's wickedness in places of justice and wickedness in places of righteousness. How can that be just? And yet, this is not God's economy at all. That things that people think they get away with are going to be accounted for. So yes, justice but here's the thing that is, is totally blown out of the water with God, and this may frustrate some people. 
that it's not just justice, but that yet there is more grace within judgment than any of us can ever comprehend. That God is more gracious and forgiving and loving and merciful than any of us can ever understand. That the grace of Jesus covers our wickedness. And for some, this is an extremely frustrating thing because what about that guy? What about that country? What about those people? They're not going to face it if they simply repent? Yes, that's the problem Jonah had with the Ninevites. God, I knew you'd do that. I knew you'd do that. That's why I didn't want to go there. That's why I went to the opposite side. That's why I ran from you. Because I know that if I just even said, I didn't even ask those people to repent. I simply said, judgment's coming. And then they were sorry for it. And then you forgave them. What? Why? They killed my family. They chopped my relatives' noses off and they put fish hooks in their lips and they dragged them to slavery. I knew you would do that. And that's our frustrating part, is that how can God be that merciful? How can he be that gracious? But aren't you so glad that you aren't held accountable for every single wicked thought that has crossed your mind? Every single wicked deed that you've acted upon. Every single wicked feeling that you've had towards someone with hatred and malice and slander. Praise God. And yet, those without Jesus, without that heart of repentance before God, they are held accountable because they don't have a mediator. They don't have someone standing in the gap for them, pronouncing their innocence. And yet, he wants that. And yet, people can judge God saying, like, how can he be so unmerciful, unkind, unloving, when he's saying, I want to stand there for you, but you don't want me there. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity, all go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Remember, this is all into the context of under the sun. Meaning apart from God. This is all in the context of without God. So without God, what is the ultimate difference between humans and animals? Because we all decompose and we meet the same fate. That while alive, we may have the greater intelligence. We may have greater skill or creativity or whatever. But the same inevitable end happens to everything that breathes. So under the sun, without God, what's the point? What's the difference? So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, this is under the context of under the sun, thinking, the, the secular thinking, the humanistic thinking that Kohelet is referring to, that, that nothing is better for people to do everything they can in this world because what else is there to live for? You gotta, you gotta live it up. So Kohelet is pointing out, it's nothing. It all decomposes, it all ends up in the same place because death is the ultimate end for everything. So if you really do believe that, that's your ultimate end. 
So then, what is your significance? What is your meaning? It's no more than an animal. And yet the Christian knows that this is not true. Because we're not stuck in this. We see this. We experience this. This is purpose. This is meaning. This is significance. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. His purpose. It's not this. It's His purpose. God is working in all of it. His hand is in all of it. All these slivers throughout human history, and through, even through things that we don't have control over, that God, through His providence, is fashioning, is molding, is shaping His purpose and His plan for all of us. And God is doing something much greater. He doesn't have abandoned projects. He doesn't have forsaken people. He sees all of it. And when we recognize God is working in us, there's a humility formed in us. There is a confidence built in us. We, we are humbled that God works in us. We are, we are confident because He's our God. And God doesn't have children who are forsaken. The cycles of life, they're, they're, they're similar for all people. We all experience this, these cycles of life. What sets us apart from others, from humanists, from secularists, is not what we experience. It's not the cycle. What sets us apart is the perspective. To know that it's not this, to know that God is in constant control, that he is dependable. And that perspective is what sets us apart. We're not stuck here. Let me end with sharing a verse from Philippians. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he's, he's writing this from prison. The Apostle Paul is writing this from a cell chained up to a Roman soldier in Rome. And he's writing this to the church, and he's writing this as a prisoner. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How can somebody as a prisoner write that? He's not living here. He's living here. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. Holy Spirit, we're so thankful how you penetrate our soul, our spirit, our mind, our heart. And we're asking, God, that it doesn't just get stuck in a knowledge form. God, that it doesn't get stuck in just a feeling form. But that we're changed. That, that there is a noticeable change, just like in the Apostle Paul, from someone who beat Christians locked them up in jail, separated families to a person who is imprisoned and is able to write that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May we be changed people in Jesus' name. Amen.